here a couple of times now uh, when Jason has been out and he's been gracious enough to ask me to come and preach. And the fact that I'm here again um, makes me think that I haven't said anything too heretical yet. And so uh, I'm thankful to be back with you uh, to bring the word this morning as he is on vacation, uh, continuing in this sermon uh, on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20 this morning. says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for I pray that we would take your word to heart, that we would understand what it means that you came not to, that Christ came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill God, we ask that you would move in this time by your grace and through your word, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, just this last year, toward the end of the year, we actually preached through the Sermon on the Mount at my church at Redeemer Baptist uh, in Olive Branch, and I had the blessing, the privilege to preach the text before this one and preach the text after this one, but not preach this text, so I'm excited that I get to come and be here with you and preach this text now. And, and for the context of where we are, if you have been uh, in this series for the last couple of weeks, you will know that Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, these characteristics of what a kingdom citizen looks like that runs countercultural to what is expected. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are poor in spirit, who are merciful and pure in heart. And then Jesus goes on from the Beatitudes to talk about being salt and light in a world that so desperately needs it. And we understand that, that those who are following Christ those who are displaying those beatitudes, those characteristics of a kingdom citizen, 
They are naturally and inherently salt and light in the world around them. Displaying the glory of Christ, pointing others to and shining a light on the goodness of God and the grace of his kingdom and preserving the world around them until the coming of Christ. And so now we come to this passage, which is an incredibly important passage, not just here in this sermon, but in understanding the scriptures as a whole. And the first thing that we see is there in verse 17, Jesus fulfills the law and prophets. Verse 17, one more time. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when Jesus says the law, he means the same thing that other authors mean in the New Testament when they reference the law. He is speaking about the first Five books of the Bible that we have. The Pentateuch is what it's known as. And so Jesus is referencing the law that was handed down to Moses. And the law that many of these Jews would have been incredibly familiar with. And he's emphasizing the fact that he's not doing away with the law, but he's fulfilling it. And, and that is an interesting term. Because we may just glance over that or we may say, yes, Jesus fulfills the law. But in order to understand what it means that Jesus fulfills the law, we have to understand what the law is. And listen, there are hundreds of Old Testament laws, so we can't go through all of those this morning because you would leave. It's too much. It's too long. But we can look at three specific categories that Old Testament laws fall into. Three specific categories. First of all, there are laws of religious practice. All right, those were customs that are instituted by God for his people. Think about the offerings, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the guilt offerings, and the sin offerings. Think about the sacrificial system, the system set up by God for his people to make atonement for their sins. Think about the ritual cleansings that go into that, that are required for the priest to take part in that. Think about the requirements for the animals that are involved in that sacrificial system. Okay, so these are laws that God gave for religious practice. This is how you practice this religion. These are the requirements, the specifications, the expectations. Those are laws of religious practice. Secondly, you have laws of spiritual distinction. Now what happened when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness, and then they get into the promised land, that entire time what happens is all the people around them are of pagan cultures. They're worshiping idols and false gods. They have terrible religious practices. Child sacrifice, incest, polygamy, all these things that, that are detrimental. And so when God gives laws of spiritual distinction, he expects his people to be set apart, to be different, to be holy, not to be in the same category or even to be able to be confused with these other people of these other cultures. So that's what these laws of spiritual distinction are. They're distinctiveness of God's people. There's this difference and separation between pure and impure, holy and unholy, clean and unclean. From the foods that they could eat to the fabric that they could wear, even to methods of farming, God hands down these laws to express how separated his people are to be from the people around them. Those are laws of spiritual distinction. And then thirdly, laws.
pertaining to sexual immorality, idolatry, hatred, envy, jealousy, malice, murder, all those things that we often think of when we think of sin and when we think of the law. So you have laws of religious practice, spiritual distinction, and moral uprightness. So how does Jesus fulfill the law? That sounds really good, but what does that mean? And we see it in each of these categories. First of all, Christ satisfies all religious practice. We no longer follow a rigid set of rules in order to worship God, but we worship in spirit and in truth because Christ is our offering, our sacrifice, and our temple. God's glory dwelling among men. Christ also serves as our spiritual distinction. We're no longer distinct because of what we eat or what we touch or how we cleanse ourselves. We are distinct because we are in Christ. Christ does not avoid those who are unclean or impure, but instead he makes them clean. He makes them pure just as he has made us clean when we come to him in confession of our sins. He is our spiritual distinction. And finally, Christ upholds all moral uprightness. We don't have to be sinners, and that's good because we can't be. But we don't have to be sinless because Christ himself was sinless on our behalf. We now have the power to resist sin because the spirit of God dwells within us. And when we do sin, we have God's grace and forgiveness through Christ to wash us clean. So Christ has satisfied the laws of religious practice. He serves as our spiritual distinction and he upholds all moral uprightness. That is how Christ has fulfilled the law for us today. Secondly, not only does Jesus talk about the law, he also mentions the prophets. Now again, in scripture, most often when the prophets are referenced in this way, he is referring to the rest of the Old Testament, the prophetic writings that pertain to himself. Because that's what the Old Testament is. It is the prophetic revelation of Christ, of the coming Messiah and his kingdom. Time and time again, we see scriptural evidence in reference to Jesus fulfilling prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and on and on and on. And Jesus himself proclaims this further. He, after he's risen from the dead, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with these two other men. And he sits down, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses, that's the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us for all the promises, these prophetic promises that we have been given in the Old Testament, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is Jesus. He has fulfilled both the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that no part of the Old Testament should be thrown out or abandoned. He would also stand against a legalistic interpretation and application of the law as well, as we'll see throughout the Gospels. And as you'll come to see in this very sermon on the Mount, Christ is concerned about the very heart of the law, which deals with the very heart of man. So we see that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, and secondly, we see that Jesus upholds the law. Look at verse 18 once more. For truly I say to you, 
until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest markings in the Hebrew text will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, there are those in this day and in our day who would seek to negate or diminish or relax, as verse 19 says, the law. Even those now who would call themselves Christians. They call the law antiquated or outdated and ultimately pointless. They say, we have Christ and we understand his heart, so why do we need the law? But, but there are several problems with this. And the first and foremost is this. It's this text. Jesus doesn't negate the law. Jesus doesn't throw the law out. He doesn't diminish or relax the law in any way. Instead, he uses the law to point to himself and say that he is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus himself upholds the law and warns those who relax it or set it aside altogether. The scripture makes it clear that the law exists for our good and for God's glory. The law points us to what is the best way to live for everyone's good, which gives God glory. And it reveals our need for Christ and his mercy and grace. Amen. Now, I have five kids. And they're all eight and under. They're relatively small. And what happens when you have kids is that you make rules. You can't avoid it. You have to do it. It's good. And so we have a lot of rules for our kids. So, for example, our youngest, Rosie is two years old, and she likes to stand up in her high chair and sit down on, her high on, the, on the side of her high chair and play games while she's in her high chair instead of sitting and eating food in her high chair. And so our rule for her is, listen, you have to sit down when you're in your high chair. You have to sit down when, you, when, when you're in your high chair so you can eat and so that you're safe. Now, a couple weeks ago, you can imagine where this is going. She was not sitting down. She was standing up and playing, and she fell. So she's crying on the floor. I'm glad I picked her up. And I'm comfortable. I say, it's okay. You're going to be all right. I love you. Get her back in her seat. And then I say, now listen. This is why we tell you you can't play in your high chair and stand up in your high chair. One of the things that we tell our kids all the time is, listen, you may not understand why we tell you that you have to do something or that you can't do something. But there's always a reason. It's always for your good. We're not just making it up to keep you from something. We are looking out for you and for other people around you. That's, what those, that's the purpose that our rules serve. And the same is true of the law of God. It is there for our good. We don't always understand it. We don't always get it in the moment. But the Lord has given it to us for our good. Galatians 3.24, Paul describes the law as a guardian. Some translations use the word tutor or teacher. Both are very good and faithful ways of understanding why the law exists. It is there to protect us and to teach us, to tutor us in the understanding that, listen, we cannot do this on our own. We need help. We cannot accomplish the law in our own ability. It tutors and teaches us towards Christ. Jesus goes on to say that the law will remain until all is accomplished. 
He says, heaven and earth will fail. And what does he mean by that? What he means by that is that the law will continue to be applicable and helpful and serve as a guardian and a teacher until Jesus returns. Because when Jesus returns, what happens? The old earth and the old heaven pass away. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And the new reality within that new heaven and new earth is that there is no more sin. There is no more shame, shame. There is no more selfishness. There is no more death. With the eradication of sin, we will all live in the best way. We will all perfectly glorify God. And the principles of the law will not be a standard for us to strive for, but instead will be a daily reality in which the saints all live. Jesus upholds the law. Thirdly, Jesus demands our righteousness. Verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus talks about relaxing the law, the root of that word is the same as that word abolish that he talked about earlier. So really throwing the law out. And, and for most of us who are here, if you're here in this place, in a church on Sunday morning, you would probably say, I would never relax the law. I'm not going to do that. Because none of us would want to readily admit that there are times when we try to justify our sins. That there are times where we glance over something that we shouldn't. Where we are involved in some sort of practice or attitude or action that is indeed absolutely a relaxing of the law. And yet we would never want to see it that way. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And as Christ's followers, we must absolutely take sin seriously. We tend to categorize sin as great, terrible sins and, you know, little, little small sins that everybody commits. So I'm in the same boat as everybody else. And these are tragic and terrible and we'll do everything that we can to avoid them, but these are just realities in our life. And these things happen. But brothers and sisters, as those who know Christ, as those who are striving to follow Jesus, we must take all sin seriously. Because, as James says, one violation is all violation. If we're not pursuing Christ wholly and fully and striving for holiness in every way that we can, we are not doing it at all. We can't just do what we can to avoid the big sins and, and wink at the smaller things, dance around them, act as though they're not that big of a deal. Sin is sin. 
and sin leads to death. The violation of the law that God gives, no matter how small we may think, is exactly what hinders human flourishing. It hurts your relationship with others. It hinders your relationship with God himself. We must take sin seriously. But as followers of Christ, we must also take grace seriously. We have to know and understand that, yes, while we may sin, God is so gracious, as was referenced this morning. If we are confessing our sin, he is faithful to forgive us of our sin. He is gracious and merciful above all else. And there are those who would take the law and wield it like a hammer waiting to see someone else violate it in some way so that they could say, that person's not a follower of Jesus. I can't believe somebody who professed to be a Christian would do that. Or even so that they can look at the world around them that doesn't even claim to know Christ and just start attacking and saying, look at the world. Can you believe how wicked and sinful they are? Absolutely I can. They don't know Jesus. We cannot wield the law as a hammer. It is not a weapon. And then there are those who would treat the law as yesterday's newspaper. It's old news. I'll throw it away. I'll throw it in the fire. It's not useful to me anymore. That is incredibly dangerous as well. And I didn't write this down, but I think there's another category of person. I... I have this section of my counter that's dedicated to bills. So when a bill comes in, I look at it, I think I've got to pay this, and then I set it on that section of my counter and I walk away because I don't want to deal with it right then. And sometimes that stack gets a little large, right? Because I know it's there, I just don't want to look at it. I don't want to deal with it. I'm going to have to eventually, but I don't want to. Some of us treat the law the same way. We know it's there, but we're just going to keep walking by because it doesn't exist. It's easier not to confront it. It's easier not to sit down and work through it because we know what it's going to say about us. Brothers and sisters, instead of any of those things, the law should be treasured. Because what it should do for us as followers of Christ is drive us to the cross. The law should drive us to the cross. It should force us to recognize, I cannot do this. I need Christ. I'm not able. I need grace. I am helpless. Give me your mercy, God. We must not relax the law. And then Jesus goes on to really, really destroy the morale of every person sitting in front of him. This is how he does that. He says that in order for them to enter the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this crowd would have been well, well versed, very familiar with the scribes and the Pharisees because they heard them pray in the city center. They've seen 
their sunken and fallow faces when they've been fasting to let everybody know for sure that they've been fasting. They watch them as they condemned people for taking too many steps on the Sabbath. They know that these people know the law backwards and forwards better than they ever could. That they are the enforcers of the law. And so when they heard that, they thought, how could our righteousness ever exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? How can we possibly, possibly do that good? There's no way. <laughs> and I can just picture when Jesus says that, the crowd as their heads sink. And they realize, well, then we can never get into the kingdom of God. We can never experience the kingdom of God. It's a daunting and honestly impossible proposition. But there's a whole sermon to come. And in that sermon... What we will see is that righteousness is not just about outward action, but internal motivation. Man looks at the outward deeds while God looks at the heart. What becomes clear throughout this sermon is that no one, no one, not the scribes and Pharisees, not the people there, not even Jesus' disciples themselves, no one can meet the demand of righteousness that Jesus has set forth. No one can enter the kingdom of God on his or her own merit. And again, just like the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus is driving us to understand that we cannot do this. That we try and we fail. That we are too consumed with selfishness and self-preservation and self-gratification and self-righteousness and all other matters of self. But the beauty of this passage is that he doesn't say, I have come so that you might fulfill the law. That's not what this passage says. Hear that. Because there are those who would think, okay, Jesus came so that I can be good enough. That's not what this passage says. He didn't come so that you could fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets himself as only he could. He alone has exceeding righteousness because he alone, as we've already spoken of, has satisfied all religious practice. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 10 says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus alone satisfies laws of religious practice. We can't do it. Jesus alone serves as our spiritual distinction 
Galatians 2.20, you know this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus sets us apart on his own by his work, not by ours. He alone conserves our spiritual distinction. And he alone can uphold all moral uprightness. Hebrews again, 7, beginning verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus alone fulfills the law. He does everything that we cannot do. Brothers and sisters, we must absolutely take sin seriously. We must absolutely battle against it and strive toward holiness every single day. But we must absolutely know and understand that Jesus alone brings salvation. Not our works, not our effort, not our ability to uphold a law that we cannot complete, but that he himself has fulfilled on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, may we look to Christ. May we not wield the law as a hammer. May we not cast it aside and throw it in the garbage or the fire. May we not walk by glancing at it, but may we instead allow it to compel us toward you pray with me. Father, we thank you for the law. We know that it still has merit and purpose and use, Lord. We know that it is for our good and for your glory. And most of all, God, I pray this morning that we would know that you have fulfilled the law in Christ that everything we could never do or accomplish has been done and accomplished in Christ. Lord, I pray that for anyone here who doesn't understand and know what Christ has done on their behalf, that they would come to know it. That I will be here after the service. I'd be happy to talk to or pray through anything afterwards in further discussions. Lord, but I pray that they would know today that they can be saved, that they would of their sins, their inability to keep the law and place their faith and trust in Christ who has who does. May we praise Jesus for what he's done. May we be 